Andrea Kennedy was born on July 2, 1964, in Hallsville, Texas. By most accounts, she had a normal childhood, with depression and some suicidal ideation noted in her teenage years. By the end of her high school years, however, Andrea seemed to have conquered her teenage issues, graduating as the class valedictorian and captain of the school swim team. Andrea would later go on to graduate from the University of Texas Health Center at Houston with a degree in nursing, after which she worked as an RN at MD Anderson Cancer Center for the next eight years. In 1989, Andrea met Russell, Rusty Yates, who worked for NASA and lived in the same apartment complex. The two dated and lived together for four years before being married on April 17, 1993. The following year, in 1994, Andrea quit her job to start a family. Reports of Andrea and Rusty signified that they were religious, but not members of any specific church, and believed to be followers of the teachings of a fundamentalist preacher named Michael Waranicki. In terms of children, it was reported that Rusty once said that the two of them, quote, wanted as many children as nature allowed, alluding to his desire to have a large family. Andrea and Rusty's first child, Noah, was born in February 1994. At the time, Andrea experienced a hallucination that involved a stabbing. Soon after, Rusty accepted a job offer in Florida, and the two moved to a small trailer in Seminole, where Andrea birthed their second child, John. By the time they had their third son, Paul, the couple moved back to Houston, where they lived in a converted bus where Andrea homeschooled all of the children while also taking care of her father, who suffered from dementia. By the time Andrea gave birth to their fourth son, Luke, she had become very depressed, with Rusty arriving home from work to find her in a state of mental distress. The next day, Andrea attempted suicide with an overdose of pills, after which she was hospitalized and given antidepressant medication. She was released after only a few days because her insurance would not cover any more time in the hospital. It was reported that Andrea wouldn't take her medications, and a few days later begged Rusty to let her kill herself while holding a knife to her throat. At the time, she was hearing voices and began pulling out her hair. Andrea soon became near catatonic and was rehospitalized. This time, she was given a cocktail of medications, including the antipsychotic medicine Haldol. Her symptoms improved rapidly and significantly, and Andrea was released from the hospital with a prescription for the antipsychotic medication. After her discharge, the family moved out of the converted bus and into a house. While she initially appeared to be doing well, in July 1999, she attempted suicide two more times. She was hospitalized each time and diagnosed with postpartum psychosis. At the time, Andrea's treating physician informed her that her psychosis would return if she had any more children. Andrea and Rusty were cautioned not to have any more kids, but believed it was worth the risk since they knew what treatment and medication seemed to work for her. Seven weeks later, Andrea got pregnant with their fifth child, Mary. She went off her medications and gave birth in November of 2000. By all accounts, Andrea appeared to be doing well until her father passed away in early 2001. She subsequently discontinued her medications and stopped eating and drinking. She began reading the Bible obsessively and again started pulling out her hair. She also became paranoid, believing there were video cameras spying on her in her house. She claimed hearing cartoon characters on TV telling her she was a bad mother. She eventually stopped talking and was again hospitalized. 
While in the hospital, Andrea restarted her medications. She was discharged after 10 days when she showed signs of mental improvement and because her insurance coverage had run out. Upon her discharge, it was recommended that she not be left alone with the children. Rusty began having his mother come sit with Andrea and the kids while he was at work. She continued to engage in odd behavior, however, such as filling the bathtub just in case she needed it. Her family took her back to the hospital where her doctor began to wean her off Haldol. Her functioning declined over the subsequent weeks and Rusty asked to have her medication restarted. The psychiatrist informed him the medication was, quote, a bad medicine and would not restart it. He instead instructed Andrea to, quote, think positive thoughts. Andrea returned home, only being around the children with supervision. However, Rusty, feeling sorry for Andrea, began giving her short periods of time alone with the kids, leaving her home alone with them for an hour after he left for work before his mother arrived. It was on June 20, 2001, after Rusty left for work, during the one hour she was alone with the children, that Andrea filled the bathtub and proceeded to drown them one by one. Andrea drowned John, Paul, and Luke in that order, laying them next to each other on her bed. As she was drowning Mary, she was briefly interrupted by Noah, who seeing Mary's dead body in the bathtub, attempted to flee his mother. Andrea caught up to him and dragged him back to the bathroom where she drowned him as well. According to reports, she left Noah in the tub but laid Mary and her brother John's arms on the bed. Andrea promptly called the police and asked for an officer but was cryptic on the phone. When she was assured an officer would be en route, she hung up and called Rusty, telling him to return home as quickly as possible. Andrea confessed to killing all five of her children. During her first trial, it seemed as if Andrea deliberately planned the murders by waiting for Rusty to leave for work before filling up the bathtub to drown her children. Other reports pointed to the family dog being locked up that morning so as not to interrupt her while she killed the kids. Another sign that Andrea knew what she was doing and that the murders were a deliberate act. In March 2002, Andrea Yates was found guilty of capital murder during her first trial by a jury who rejected her insanity defense. They refused the death penalty, however, and instead opted for life imprisonment with the possibility of parole after 40 years. In January of 2005, it came to light that one of the psychiatrists had given false testimony during the trial. Renowned forensic psychiatrist Park Dietz came forward and admitted to a mistake during his testimony regarding an episode of Law & Order that he had originally believed Andrea had watched and where she may have gotten the idea to drown her children. It was later realized that this episode of Law & Order never existed before Andrea's crime. Because Park Dietz's testimony may have had an influence on the jury's decision, Andrea's verdict was overturned and she was granted a second trial. In January of 2006, Andrea again pled not guilty by reason of insanity. She was also granted bail the following month, with the expressed order that she'd be admitted to a mental health facility. In July of 2006, Andrea was found not guilty by reason of insanity. She was then committed to a psychiatric facility. Even though she has the right to have her commitment reviewed every six months, she has declined these reviews and opted to remain under the state's care. In the end, a number of factors were cited as the potential cause of Andrea's behavior. 
issues with her prescriptions and the mismanagement of her medications, expenses associated with her hospitalizations and insurance restrictions, her husband's insistence on having more children, and his inability to care for Andrea's mental health, and even the influence of Michael Waranicki, the fundamentalist preacher Andrea followed, were examined during the trials. It was reported that while she was in prison, Andrea confessed to planning on killing her children for a full two years before committing the act. She stated, quote, It was the seventh deadly sin. My children weren't righteous. They stumbled because I was evil. The way I was raising them, they could never be saved. They were doomed to perish in the fires of hell. This episode is about Andrea Yates. Hello and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McConnell and Dr. David Morelos. So David, this case was actually suggested by our listener, Kelsey. Um, so thank you, Kelsey. It's also a case that I've wanted to talk about for a while. Definitely. It's a very interesting and tragic case. We have five children all killed by their mother. Obviously, in a case like this, everyone has the same basic questions. Why would a mother, one of two people, who is tasked with giving her children unconditional love, commit such a monstrous act? Yeah, I, I think that that's why this case was so gripping. It was just, just so um, hard to understand. Yeah, definitely. You know, so first off, I, I certainly don't want to sound callous or glib about this case in any way. There is no doubting that Yates murdered her children. That part really isn't up for debate. With an ending that's as tragic as this, we have to ask ourselves, will the, quote, whys of the case make a difference in how we feel about the death of five young children? Maybe, maybe not. I think there is room, however, for a constructive conversation about the nature of psychosis, which is something that you and I have talked about in the past, and has been one subject that has sort of laid bare our collective differences in how we tend to approach psychological medicine. I'm, of course, going all the way back to our inaugural episode about the psychosis and ultimate death of 22-year-old Janet Moses and how her family approached her illness. So, to look at Yates, I wanted to go back to the idea in transpersonal psychology that a break from reality, what we would normally call psychosis, can, in certain contexts, be a spiritual crisis in which one can be waking up, so to speak, to new and different forms of consciousness. Again, I don't want to put the rose-colored glasses on here because five innocent children did die. And there really is no way to contextualize this as something positive, nor would I ever try to do that. So there's that. There is a question of how, as a society, we have developed a very negative view of those who have this kind of experience, however. 
Getting to how Yates was treated for what was diagnosed as severe postpartum depression, it seemed that she was treated in what I would call a standard psychiatric way. That is, she was diagnosed and medicated. And for a brief while, her medication, Haldol, seemed to be working by rebalancing dopamine levels in Yates' brain chemistry. Haldol is a very well-known and well-regarded drug for psychosis. Would you agree, Dr. McCono? Yeah, it's um, one of the, the older antipsychotic medications, but it tends to be quite effective. Sure. I'll be the first to admit that psychiatric medicine is not my wheelhouse, and I know very little about how exactly psychotropic drugs are prescribed. I do know that these kinds of drugs certainly have their place in psychology, and I routinely advocate for the inmates who I work with to take their prescriptions seriously as they would any other serious medical condition. But there were some disconnects. One of the biggest problems with psychotropic medications is that, for some reason, people who take them often become fooled, so to speak, into thinking that they don't need them after they start to feel better. But feeling better, of course, simply means the drugs are working and, of course, not taking them is what leads to potential relapses and symptoms. I'm not sure what the thinking is here because people don't generally take that mindset when the problem is a physical one, but definitely more so when the issue is a psychiatric one, at least in my experience. Again, I'll ask you to weigh in on that claim, Dr. McCona. Well, I I think that, you know, it's... It's probably similar to other chronic medical conditions. You know, I think a lot of us think if we're feeling unwell and we take a medication, let's say you have strep throat, right? And you take an antibiotic, Uh you start feeling better, you take the rest of your medication and then you're good to go. You don't have to take it anymore. And so that is kind of what we've learned is that when I take medicine, then that makes me better and then I'm cured. And so I think that that... um, that use of the word cure Mm. um, when it comes to mental health disorders is very misleading because most mental health disorders aren't quote-unquote cured. People learn how to manage them either through medication or therapy or some combination of those things. And so I do think that it's quite common for people to take their medications and then stop them when they start to feel better, just like you said, uh, David, because they think, okay, the medication has done what, you know, it's served its purpose. Right. Um, but there's also the other piece, the added piece is that many times people who have psychotic disorders in particular don't really have insight into the fact that they have an illness. And so that can be an additional challenge in getting people to um, get on medications and to continue taking their medications. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So anyway, the Haldol seemed to work for a brief time. Andrea Yates and her husband, however, seemed to be very religious people. I didn't see anywhere where their faith was explored during our research, but from what I did read, they seemed very involved in a faith that, like many religions, stressed having a large family. Andrea Yates was told very directly, I think, that having more children after her first psychotic break would result in an even stronger psychosis. Not to be deterred from their religious beliefs, however, Rusty, Andrea's husband, convinced her to try for one more. This seemed to be Rusty and Andrea's first mistake. And of course, Andrea did exactly the opposite of what her doctors recommended and went off of her medications to have her fifth and final child. And what they warned her about came to pass. She fell into another deep depression and psychotic episode. On the day she murdered her children, Rusty again defied the advice of the medical professionals and left Andrea alone with the children so he could go to work. We all know what happened after that. 
So in a very real sense, Andrea's medication seemed to be working for her, and it was her decision to have another child and take herself off the Haldol that led to her psychotic break. So it seems that this case was simple enough in that regard. She was found not guilty by reason of insanity after a second trial she was given due to a misstatement by your hero, renowned forensic psychiatrist Park Dietz. Yes, he is. Yes. He's, I'm a big fan. Right. Who incorrectly stated that Yates was influenced by an episode of Law & Order. Okay. I don't think this case is this simple, however. To me, psychosis can be much more complicated than what first meets the eye. It's easy to write off people who are going through this kind of experience as mentally ill or crazy, but that's not always the case. So I'll start with an article that was written by a friend of mine, Dr. Diana Robb, who writes for Psychology Today and a number of other publications. She and I studied transpersonal psychology together back at Sophia University. She wrote an article entitled, Is It Psychosis or Spiritual Emergency? from 2015, in which she stated that, quote, These terms are confused, but the subtle difference is worth exploring. In the article, Dr. Robb makes reference to the work of Stanislav and Christina Groff, who have written extensively about spiritual crisis. Just a side note, I got to meet and attend a full-day lecture with Stanislav Groff while on retreat at Sophia, and he is definitely one of my heroes. Yeah, that would have been really interesting. Yeah, it was fascinating. It was great stuff, um, and something I'll always remember. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, His work is also something I referenced a while back in our episode about perinatal trauma and the death of Candace Newmaker. I'll be honest and state directly that I am not an expert on spiritual crisis. I am fascinated, however, by the arguments made by my friend Dr. Rob and my heroes, the Groffs. When I was at Sophia, I also met a psychiatrist who worked for the Canadian Health Service and often treated acute mental distress that often presented as psychosis, usually from substance abuse. It was his job to stabilize them, oversee their detox, if it was due to drugs, and then make the proper referrals for therapy and follow-up. And yet, this very straight-laced psychiatrist had found his way to Sophia University to study the transpersonal as well because he had become fascinated with the ideas of the Groffs and others who were leading a movement away from psychiatric medical interventions for what many of them argued was a spiritual crisis. So what is a spiritual crisis, or a spiritual emergency then? Well, first off, Dr. Rob wrote that these can be triggered by such things as a lack of sleep, childbirth, miscarriage, or abortion. She wrote that extreme sexual experiences can also trigger spiritual crisis, as well as spiritual practices and things like meditation. These experiences have often been linked to things like peak experiences, which I'll get to in a bit. Past life experiences, the channeling of spiritual guides, kundalini experiences, near-death experiences, UFO encounters, and even drug and alcohol addictions. Dr. Rob goes on to say that, quote, a spiritual crisis can result in intense emotions, unusual thoughts and behaviors, and perceptual changes. This crisis often involves a spiritual component such as experiences of death and rebirth, unity with the universe, and encounters with powerful beings. She goes on to say that, quote, the experience of a spiritual emergency, if managed and treated under supervision, can therefore be life-changing and offer the individual a deeper sense of passion, wisdom, love, and zest for life, and an expanded worldview and overall psychosomatic health. So this next part, I'm just going to read verbatim because I really like the way Dr. Rob phrased this. 
And he goes, both psychotic and spiritual experiences involve escaping the limiting boundaries of the self, which leads to immense elation and freedom as the outlines of the confining selfhood melt down. Anthropologists have documented how such experiences sometimes lead to a revitalization within a culture, and the citation there is Wallace of 1956. Transpersonal psychologists believe that the spiritual emergency can be quite powerful because the experience tends to transcend the ego and may be a natural developmental process that has psychological and spiritual elements. Okay, so now that we have a basic understanding of what a spiritual emergency or crisis is, I would like to humbly submit this idea into the conversation as a possibility for Andrea Yates. There are a number of issues that I see with Yates that lead me down this path. For instance, Yates was a very accomplished student. She was valedictorian of her class. She was also an athlete swimmer. She completed a nursing degree. I'm going to go out on a limb by saying this, but I have a feeling that living in a bus and caring for a number of children was not what she saw for herself in this life. Of course, this is an assumption, but given the work that she put into her studies and her athleticism, I wonder if she didn't have other goals for herself before she met her husband Rusty. Just to be clear, I am not trying to draw any kind of justifications for Yates killing her children. Rather, I am looking for possible explanations for her behavior. In this sense, every child that she had seemed to cause more cognitive dissonance in her. Every child became a symbol of her straying more and more from what she saw as her own soul's journey in life. Her psychosis could have been this spiritual opening, as described by Dr. Rob, where the ego is transcended and doors are open to deep truths about what we really want for ourselves in this life. Again, this can be a natural developmental process. So now as we continue to go down this rabbit hole, we have to look at Yeats's experience in the context of spiritual crisis rather than pathology. If her initial non-ordinary state was indeed a catalyst that had the potential to lead her away from the life she had consciously chosen, but rather followed her much deeper unconscious wants and desires, then it could be argued that her spiritual emergency was more akin to spiritual emergence. That is, this was her repressed self her true soul calling finally emerging in the midst of the cognitive dissonance that was taking place in her day-to-day -day life. She continued to repress her feelings in spite of her increased unhappiness with her life situation until her soul dimension demanded her attention in the form of a spiritual crisis. So what went wrong then? How can spiritual emergence become so powerfully tragic? It would seem that the emergence of the soul dimension could only be a good thing, right? Certainly not something that leads to the deaths of five innocent children. Okay, let's get back to Dr. Rob's mention of peak experiences as spiritual crisis. A peak experience is an experience whereby the person gets a peak of a much higher level of consciousness than what they would normally occupy in their day-to-day -day lives. Many people have described this. You often hear it related to near-death experiences or psychedelic experiences, intense emotional experiences involving life and death, and through relationships with others, and even experiences with the natural world. But basically, it's like a feeling of suddenly understanding something deeper in the universe, like a sudden glimpse of a profound truth or a piece of spiritual wisdom. Very often, an experiencer will come back from the experience with a renewed sense of purpose or life mission or something like this. And yes, experiences like this can and have changed people's entire worldviews. 
Someone may come back from a peak experience and suddenly end their marriage, change religions or careers, or otherwise completely rearrange their lives. A while back, you and I received an email from a person who was describing something like this and asked for our help. Yeah, I remember that. I'm not an expert on this, uh, so we referred them to ASSIST, which is the American Center for the Integration of Spiritually Transformative Experiences, and who specialized in helping people normalize experiences like this, as they can be very disorienting when the experiencer lacks the proper support to integrate them into their lives. And we have a link to that on our webpage, that website. So what went wrong? Well, as typical in our Western and often myopic view of medicine, Yates was diagnosed as psychotic and medicated. Again, I understand the need for medication. I really do, and I am not anti-psychiatric medications. I'm just not. But these have to be used, in my opinion, with the intent that they are only to give the experiencer the space they need to be able to process and normalize their experiences with other forms of therapy. In many cases for spiritual emergency, this can be through forms of self-expression such as art, the symbology of which is later discussed as meaningful for getting to the unconscious issues the experiencer may be having. I would venture to say that Yates probably did not have this kind of support when she first started displaying symptoms. From what I read, and I could be wrong here, she was medicated and sent back home with the basic understanding that she would take Haldol indefinitely. Was that your understanding, Dr. McCona? You know, it was kind of hard to understand if they intended her to be on it forever or if this was, you know, something to treat the postpartum psychosis and they thought that that might resolve. So, I, you know, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I, I don't know about you, but the prospect of taking a powerful antipsychotic for the rest of my life just doesn't work well for me. Well, but I think yeah. it gets back to what we were talking about earlier. Sure. If it's a chronic illness, if you had diabetes, you may not want to take insulin for the rest of your life, but you may not have a choice. And so I, I think that we can kind of use that parallel in something like, like uh, psychosis. If it's going to be a chronic condition, people may need to be medicated for the rest of their lives. Okay, I'll accept that. So Yates' support system may have been an issue in this regard. But I think the biggest issue here was with her religious beliefs. So let me explain. Obviously, people have all kinds of beliefs, and really, I'm not the one to tell anyone that they're wrong. This would run counter to what many transpersonalists practice and argue. So how does this work? Well, peak experiences, especially very powerful and jarring ones, always run into the issue of how they are interpreted. So even though a peak experience may be a profound glimpse into a higher form of consciousness, many people will interpret this experience through the lens of the form of consciousness that they occupy in the day-to-day. -day. For example, to use the language of spiral dynamics, as I like to do, an orange rational thinker might say something like, it was something I ate, while a blue mythic thinker might try to contextualize their experience through the lens of their dominant belief system. In Yeats's case, this was her fundamentalist, fire and brimstone form of Christianity. Well, in my own experience, and I'm not saying this is an issue for everyone, but in my experience, those that I would call fundamentalists seem to have a very black and white, good versus evil approach to the world. Okay, that's their view. But contextualizing a peak experience through this good versus evil lens can be very dangerous if not properly managed, as it can lead to some very dark paths, one of which is what I believe Yates took in order to, quote, save her children by killing them. 
Peak experiences, I would argue, have a tremendous amount of nuance to them, and they need to be handled with care. Forcing a peak experience into a rigid set of beliefs is just asking for this kind of good or evil with nothing in between kind of interpretation. And there is a record of Yates attempting to contextualize her experience in this way. The description that I read about her mentioned that one of the things she started doing a great deal of when she first started showing symptoms was voraciously reading the Bible. Well, there's nothing wrong with reaching out to your faith for help in a crisis like this. But again, I would argue, the more fundamentalist the belief system is, the more rigid and unforgiving it is, the more likely we are to wind up with a dark interpretation of the spirit of the experience. Obviously, there are many forms of Christianity, and I think a more nuanced approach with a less rigid dogma would have done a much better job, allowing Yates the space she needed to integrate her experience rather than fight it by killing her children. So those are my thoughts on the matter. The transpersonalists do a lot more than I mentioned here to try to unpack the idea of psychosis as a pathology by putting it into a wider cultural context. This basic idea came up in the first episode that you and I did together, Jessica, that being how mystical wisdom can sometimes look like pathology, and I believe I mentioned one of my favorite mystics in that regard, that being St. Teresa of Avila. I wonder what would have happened had she been medicated instead of being allowed to experience her ecstasies. Would we have her profound spiritual knowledge today? Obviously, it could be argued that Yates's children would most likely be still alive if she were medicated as prescribed, and I do not deny this. But I also think her children would be alive if Yates was given psychospiritual help from a much more compassionate and broadly defined mental health and spiritual belief system as well. Or maybe that's just me wearing my rose-colored glasses. Well, so, you know, I, I think that I understand your viewpoint, and I do think it's certainly possible for an individual to have spiritual experiences like you discussed. Okay. But the rub for me with this case is that her delusions and her hallucinations led her to hurt herself, they told her to stab people, and they ultimately led her to kill her children. And it's hard for me to conceptualize this particular set of experiences or symptoms as being more of a spiritual issue than a mental illness. And again, that's probably my, you know, my viewpoint, my lens that I use to to kind of conceptualize um, cases like this. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we do know that this type of psychosis and these types of symptoms can occur after childbirth. Right. So, you know, I'm actually going to talk about some of the legal aspects of this case. But before I do, I wanted to discuss the baby blues, postpartum depression, and postpartum psychosis just for a quick minute. Most women experience some feelings of sadness or anxiety after giving birth. Estimates are that about 85% of women have some emotional disturbance, which when it's mild is usually termed the baby blues. Postpartum depression, which is more severe, occurs in about 10-15% to of new mothers. And typical symptoms of postpartum depression include sadness, loss of interest in activities, tearfulness, feelings of worthlessness, feeling guilty, fatigue, change in appetite, and difficulty concentrating. But for approximately one to two women out of every thousand women that give birth, they experience symptoms similar to Andrea Yates, which is called postpartum psychosis. So it's rare, but certainly not unheard of. Symptoms of this disorder include extreme mood lability, 
disorganized speech, uh, disorganized emotion or behavior, delusions, hallucinations, and disorientation. In fact, command hallucinations directing the mother to kill herself or her children are common in women who have this disorder. There is a particularly high risk of infanticide or killing one's child, one's infant in women with postpartum psychosis. It's considered a psychiatric emergency and usually requires hospitalization and treatment with antipsychotic medication. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it Andrea Yates who really brought that into mainstream, this idea? You know, I think that there were probably many very likely many women who had experienced this, and maybe there were even other cases of this. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the Yates case was the one that really thrust it to the forefront. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, because we we have five children that she murdered. And so um, it did bring a lot of awareness to this particular disorder. So interestingly enough, I found an article published in June of 2019 about research conducted at the University of New England where they looked at differentiating between spiritual emergence and psychosis, which was like so appropriate for what we were discussing for this episode. Right. And as you mentioned, David, they also said that these experiences have the potential to be traumatic, kind of depending on how the person interprets them. In order to discuss the findings of this study, I need to talk a little bit more about psychosis. In psychosis, there are two types of symptoms. Positive symptoms, which reflect an excess or a distortion of normal functioning, and includes things like delusions, which are distortions in thought, hallucinations, which are distortions in perception, and disorganization. Negative symptoms, on the other hand, reflect the loss of normal functions and include things like restricted emotional expression, Alosia, which is also called poverty of speech or a lack of speech, and avolition, which is when a person has difficulty initiating goal-directed behavior. So in something like schizophrenia, let's say, we expect to see both positive and negative symptoms of psychosis. Anyway, Dr. Kylie Harris, who was the researcher that did this study at the University of New England, found that spiritual emergence was associated with only the positive symptoms of psychosis, not the negative ones. Okay. So she suggested that an individual whose psychotic-like experience is characterized by only positive symptoms may in fact be experiencing spiritual emergence, whereas if negative symptoms are also present, it may be more likely to be a mental illness. And I think if we consider Yates's presentation... Her symptoms, as noted by the mental health professionals who evaluated her, and even just how she presented during interviews, she was noted as displaying prominent positive and negative symptoms of psychosis. Now, David, I'm guessing you might have some thoughts on this, but I do think it's an interesting thing to consider because it can be so challenging to differentiate between what is a spiritual or religious experience and what is a mental illness. So I, the only thing I would have problems with, and I didn't get too much into the study that, that you looked at, although I, I definitely appreciate you bringing that to this episode. But the, the problem that I have with that is that th- this assumes that, and I know that you have a more technical definition of what a positive, how did you describe it? Positive and negative symptoms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know you have a, a much more technical definition of what positive symptoms are and negative symptoms are, but the fact that th- this idea that there isn't darkness to spirituality, I think, is what is one of the bigger problems that we're running into. 
in terms of unpacking the full scale of what it means to have a spiritually emergent experience. In other words, you know, getting back to, say, the episode that we did with Antonio Primavera on Santa Morte, mm-hmm. this is a very spiritual outlet. This is a very um, spiritual and, in, to some people, very sacred form of practice. And yet, there are many negative things and many dark things associated with this particular folk saint. The same could be true in India and the practice, the, the followers of Kali or you know, Shiva, the destroyer. There's a number of different ways that spirituality also acknowledges negative or the darkness that, that it encompasses as well. Well, and I want, let me clear something up because I don't think that that's at all what, what I'm saying. So when I'm saying positive symptoms of psychosis, I don't mean that they're good. The positive just means that we have an excess of function. So that's how we're getting things like delusions, hallucinations, and disorganization. And the negative piece doesn't have to do with anything bad. It's just a loss of normal function. Okay. And so she's not saying that this experience itself has to be positive or negative. Um, I guess, you know, generally most psychosis is negative, um, but occasionally you may have somebody that has, you know, um, voices that tell them something positive or a delusion that maybe is is positive in some way. Um, generally not. But it's it's also not saying that just because something is negative that that automatically makes it a mental illness. It's fascinating. Yeah, it, does it, that make it, sense? It, yeah, it does. It makes it makes a lot of sense to me. And like I said, this is where you know your your technical expertise on what what those definitions really mean because i didn't know that i I, i've not seen that study um but i'm definitely going to put this one in my back pocket maybe to bring back at a later episode yeah and it really is kind of helpful for me because this is something that i have to look at right differentiating between religious or spiritual experiences and mental illness and so it certainly has given me something else to consider Mm -hmm. when i'm looking at somebody's symptom presentation well, I think just the fact that you're open-minded to that is already a win. So, yeah, definitely. So, um, I really was kind of torn about what I wanted to discuss in this episode because there is so much to this case and there's a lot to say about it. But since we've only have limited time and this is already going to be a long episode, I'm going to move forward with some thoughts um, that I have on the insanity plea and some of the intricacies of that plea. I know that we've discussed the insanity plea in other episodes, especially the one on the Slenderman case, which, by the way, we're releasing our Patreon-exclusive follow-up episode on that case later this month. So if you want to hear that, be sure to check out our Patreon page. But the Andrea Yates case brings up some interesting theoretical concepts as it applies to the insanity defense. Now, just as a reminder, when we talk about insanity in the context of the criminal justice system, we're talking about insanity as a legal term. I think most people would define insanity as doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting a different outcome. Have you heard that, David? Oh, absolutely. I use it with my guys all the time. (laughs) Right. And while that may be a colloquial definition of the term, when we're discussing insanity in the legal context, jurisdictions have very specific definitions for what that term means. We've also discussed in prior episodes that not all states have the insanity defense. And in the states and the federal system that do have the insanity defense, what constitutes legal insanity can vary. When we look at the history of the insanity defense, we see that the definition of this term has evolved over time and it continues to evolve. 
Just last year, the Supreme Court issued their opinion in the case Kaler v. Kansas, where Kaler, the petitioner, argued that it was unconstitutional for Kansas to abolish the insanity defense. Now, all of us forensic psychology people were anxiously awaiting the court's opinion, as it could have had a tremendous impact on the state of the insanity defense in this country. But when the opinion came out, it was actually a little underwhelming, in my opinion. This was not a unanimous decision. It was actually a 6-3 to decision. But what the court stated was that the Due Process Clause of the Constitution does not require states to adopt an insanity defense. Anyway, the Supreme Court has resisted requiring the states to have an insanity defense, and it's also resisted setting a standard for insanity in those states with the defense. And this trend continues, as evidenced by their recent, uh, this recent case. So in the Andrea Yates case, it's important to note that Texas does have an available insanity defense. In that state, the standard for insanity is something that is called the cognitive test, or it's also called the right-wrong test, or the McNaughton standard. However, there are generally two prongs to this cognitive test. The first is to determine whether the person could appreciate the nature and quality of their actions. So in other words, did they know what they were doing and the likely outcome? The other prong is, did the person appreciate the wrongfulness of those actions? And in Texas, they only use that wrongfulness prong in their insanity standard. So in Texas law, it is stated that the defense is an affirmative defense, meaning the defendant must raise the defense. And in Texas, the burden of proof is on the defendant who must prove by a preponderance of the evidence, meaning that it was more likely than not, that, quote, at the time of the conduct charged, the actor, as a result of severe mental disease or defect, did not know that his conduct was wrong. There is also a clause stating that the mental disease or defect does not include an abnormality manifested only by repeated criminal or otherwise antisocial conduct. So in other words, a defendant can't use antisocial personality disorder as a basis for insanity. And that's pretty typical. I was going to say that that's pretty normal for most states, right? Right. And the federal system. Correct. So this standard is pretty straightforward. There are two questions to answer. Did the person have a severe mental disease or defect at the time of the behavior? And if so, did it make it so that they were unable to differentiate right from wrong? Simple, right? Sure. Ah, not so fast. So what exactly does wrongfulness mean? Does a person only need to know the behavior is illegal? If that's the bar, what about people who suffer from delusions that relate directly to the criminal behavior? Well, as you might have guessed, this is an issue that has been discussed in the U.S. court system, but I have to say it's not an issue that's been resolved. Just as we've discussed in previous episodes that there's no national standard for insanity, there is also no uniform standard or definition of the word wrongfulness as it applies to the insanity defense. Each jurisdiction is allowed to determine this for themselves, and in some jurisdictions, including the one where Andrea Yates was tried, there had been no set legal definition determined. So there are actually three different ways of defining wrongfulness in this context. The first is the one that I already mentioned, the legal wrongfulness definition. So in jurisdictions that use this definition, the question is, did the person know their conduct violated the law? 
If the answer is yes, it doesn't really matter if the person had any other justification for engaging in the behavior. Many jurisdictions do use this as their definition of wrongfulness, and if this was the definition the jury was instructed to use in Yates's case, she likely would have been found sane, right? Yeah. Yeah, she called the police right after drowning the children, and when they arrived, she told them she'd killed them. This pretty well indicates that she had an appreciation of the legal wrongfulness of her actions. Which is why she was convicted in the first trial, correct? Well, potentially. Okay. So when we consider the second definition of wrongfulness, which is termed the objective moral standard, which is used in many jurisdictions, we can see how things can get more complicated. Under this definition, a defendant who knew her conduct was illegal could still be found insane if she was operating under a delusion that led her to believe that society would have condoned the behavior. So in order to determine this, a jury would have to consider the person's delusion and also consider society's moral standards. This is often interpreted in such a way as if society had the quote-unquote special knowledge the defendant had, aka the delusion, they would agree the defendant's behavior was morally justified even if it was illegal. That's more complicated, right? Yeah, that sounds complicated. So in Yates's case, this may or may not have applied. It's pretty generally accepted that she had a delusion that if she did not kill her children, their souls would go to the devil, right? That's what she said, correct. Right. She also believed that not only was she to murder them, but that she had to be killed by the state, aka executed, which would then release Satan from her. Now, if society had this knowledge, would they have agreed she was morally justified in killing her children? Hmm. Some have argued that perhaps not, that even if society understood this, they would not condone the behavior. That brings me to the third definition, which is the subjective moral standard. In this case, the defendant can be deemed insane if she knew her behavior was illegal and she knew society would not condone it, but the behavior is consistent with her own moral standards considering the delusional beliefs she held at the time. So in Yates's case, she understood killing her children was illegal. She did appear to appreciate that others would not condone it, as she waited until she was alone with the children to do it. But she believed so intently she was saving their souls that she felt morally justified in her actions. Now, because there was no set definition of wrongfulness in the jurisdiction where Yates was tried, it was up to the judge to either give the jury specific instructions on how to define this term in considering the evidence, or the judge could not provide a specific definition and allow the jury to determine it for themselves. So I, I think it's important to talk about the fact that Yates was found guilty of capital murder during her first trial. Right. There were mental health experts on both sides, each arguing for their respective positions that she either met the standard for insanity or that she didn't. And that's pretty typical that there will be dueling experts, so to, so to say. But the prosecution's expert was, as you said, the very well-known well forensic psychiatrist Park Dietz. In addition to doing criminal evaluations, he was also an expert consultant for the show Law & Order at the time, and he testified that there had been an episode of the show that aired shortly before Yates drowned her children with basically the same storyline. 
He opined she was not insane because she called the police and because it was likely she got the idea for the murders from this television show. Now that was, I'm guessing, very compelling testimony, and Yates's first trial ended in a guilty verdict. And they did not give her the death penalty, as you mentioned. And that's kind of um, notable because she was tried in the state that uses the death penalty more than any other state. And she was tried in the county within that state that uses the death penalty more than any other county in Texas. Right. So that is pretty significant to me. But as you mentioned, there was that one problem. The show that Dr. Dietz said had the same storyline never aired prior to the incident. Now, to Dr. Dietz's credit, once he realized his mistake, he brought it to the court and Yates was granted that second trial. Right. And during that second trial, Dr. Dietz continued to opine Yates was sane because she called the police. But during the second trial, the jury disagreed. And it's pretty clear from their verdict that they were not employing that legal wrongfulness standard, but rather a moral wrongfulness standard. So anyway, I know that that's kind of a technical breakdown, but when it comes to the legal system, the definitions we use for words can be extremely important. You can see how based on the definition of that one word, wrongfulness, there can be very different outcomes. In some cases, it could literally be the difference between life and death, right? So I do have one last question for you, Dr. McCono. I don't want to put you on the spot. I know this is going to be kind of off the cuff. Okay, let's hear it. Okay, so I'm curious. Just in your own opinion, you have in the past alluded to liking sort of evolutionary explanations or possible potential evolutionary explanations for why things occur. We talked about that during our episode on psychopathy. Right. Okay, so if psychosis, let's say, cannot be contextualized as spiritual emergence, and these two things are very, very different, what do you think might be the evolutionary reason for why some people have psychotic breaks? Well, I think that that's a great question, right? Because we know that things like schizophrenia, 1% of the population. Right. You know, I I think that that's a very good question. And I'm not kind of familiar with the evolutionary viewpoint on that. Um, So I would certainly have to do some more research into it. But um, I'm guessing that some of the arguments may be exactly some of the things that you discussed. You know, I don't know that for a fact. Um, But I think that that's possible. That's just it. I, I, I think that, you know, and I just wanted to clarify this in terms of this particular case, I think that in order for any type of intervention, like, like the one that I'm describing, you know, in terms of counseling and things like that, I think that for Andrea Yates, it definitely would have had to have been much earlier on mm-hmm. when she first started displaying symptoms. I don't think that at the time when she killed her children, that any of that would have been probably very useful. Because by that time, you know, this was a done deal. She needed to be medicated, I think, so as not to harm herself or anybody else. And then once she was stabilized again, maybe that other sort of explanation could have been looked at a little bit more. But I'm just, yeah, I was just curious because, you know, this topic in the context of transpersonal psychology has always fascinated me. And like I said, it was something that was quite a big topic of discussion, you know, when I was studying. Yeah, I'm sure. It's hard to say because there are people that maybe can function with their psychotic symptoms that don't require medication. Right. Um, And there are other people who are very, very ill. 
And, you know, I certainly have worked with people who are very ill and, and in my opinion, getting them treatment is a very humane thing to do because they're very tortured or unable to care for themselves or they're a danger to themselves or other people, right. such as, as this case. And so I, I think that it, it is important to be open to medications and to understand that they definitely serve their purpose. They're very effective, and they have really allowed people a lot of freedom. So people in the past that wouldn't have been able to function in society would have been institutionalized for their entire lives. And things, medications like Haldol and some of the atypical antipsychotics that we have now have really allowed people to live independent lives outside of, of institutions and to be very healthy and to have families and careers. And, and so I think that that's very important to just keep in mind and, and remember. You know, it's definitely part of it, right? I mean, what is the end result? And if the end result is people get to live happy lives, productive lives, then it's very difficult to see that as a bad thing. Right. I agree. As always, appreciate your technical knowledge and wisdom, Dr. McConaugh. Well, and I appreciate your um, differing viewpoint because um, I think it's important for us to, to remain balanced and to remember to look at things from multiple angles. So anyway, we're going to um, wrap this one up. But we will have some links to some of the things that we discussed in this episode on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. You can also send us your episode ideas from there. And we'll also have links to our Patreon page and to our merchandise page. So be sure to check those out as well. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychology After Dark. And as always, if you're enjoying our podcast, please share it with others. And thank you all for the recent episode suggestions. David, we've gotten some really good ones. Oh, yeah, definitely. Some ones that I look forward to. Yeah, and we will be putting out our poll to decide the season four finale to our patrons very soon. So I'm excited to see what we'll be talking about. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo.